and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub. Series 7, Session 5, it's Thursday the 4th of November. Welcome back. Uh, this session's titled Understanding COVID Positive Care Pathways Part 4, Therapeutic Interventions, and we're going to do a bit of rapid antigen testing um, updates and discussion as well. So welcome to the COVID Positive Care Pathways at Westwick PHN Echo Network. Uh, this series follows the patient journey from uh, testing, triage, risk assessment, clinical assessment, monitoring. And this morning, we'll focus on a didactic on novel therapeutics for COVID, as well as considering the use of familiar therapeutics in the management of this novel virus. And as always, we'll be considering our role as prescribers or in the referral pathways, engagement support and follow up for these treatments. What is our role with these therapies? But I'd also like to backtrack a little to the beginning of the COVID care pathway, um, but still in the spirit of novel interventions, with the release of home-based rapid antigen testing kits in supermarkets this week, we'd like to bring you a timely update on how these testing kits might um, be integrated uh, both with uh, as a public health piece and, round, and what kind of trace and isolate advice we might be using in the context of a positive rapid antigen test, but also how does a rat fit within our clinical care algorithms within primary care. So how are we going to use these tests in practice? We'll feature a small case vignette and seek to bring life the, to life the grounded experience of advising patients with positive tests. So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrest, I'm a GP, and I'll be running this meeting this morning with ECHO coordinators Fee and Katrina Martin. Thanks for Zach, to Zach Hollow for keeping notes and Jade for um, audio and video production. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone, participants from the Westwick region and observers from outside of our region. Welcome, thank you for introducing yourself in the chat. We'll be using the chat function quite a bit this morning. Um, and so I'd like to also, before we get underway, uh, begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We recognise their diversity, resilience and the ongoing place that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hold in our communities. And we pay our respects to elders, both past, present, and we commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. All right, so what have we got on the program this morning? Okay, so we're going to kick it off this morning, um, beginning with the PHN update from Linda Govan, Regional Senior Manager. Kate Graham's going to then uh, provide the, our, um, our update on all things public health vaccinations and COVID care, um, and then progress into a, a mini didactic around rapid antigen testing. Um, we're going to follow this with a small case vignette to really get working on how we might be thinking about these tests um, at the moment. Um, and then we're going to move on to our regular COVID care pathways didactic series. So um, Dr. Carolyn Bartolo, infectious diseases physician at Bowen Health and Ballarat Health, and also at the Bowen Southwest Public Health Unit, will be running through um, a string of therapeutics. We'll have time for questions. And we'd like to welcome um, Dr. Karen Ahrens from Grampians Public Health Unit and also with ex the, that extensive experience in COVID care as a regular panellist. So welcome everyone. Um, I think with that, we'll throw over to you, Linda, and get underway. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm coming to you this morning from Wadawurrung country. Um, so just a brief update around our vaccination stats there. You can see for the Grampians um, public health catchment, where for our first doses, above 95, which is fantastic. And uh, dose twos 
heading up into the mid 80s, which is uh, again, a really good result and a, a good uh, example of, the, of all the hard work that's been going on. For the Bowen Southwest region, we've got similar stats. Again, everybody first dose above 95%. Dose two heading up towards the 90s, which is great. And, and again, calling out uh, Queenscliff and the Surf Coast for sitting at 95% now and above. So again, really, really good results for our region. So a lot of protection there from vaccinations. Um, next slide, thanks. Um, we've had some an update from the Commonwealth late last week from Minister Hunter's statement. Um, I've just pulled out the key key points there from a statement he made last week around a support package for GPs to support COVID positive patients at home. Um, just a couple of couple of items there. The $25 Medicare item is a face-to-face -face bonus for GPs um, treating COVID positive patients. Um, yet to see that actual item number. I had a, another look this morning, I couldn't find it, but we'll send that out as soon as, soon as we have details. Um, from the national stockpile, there'll be access to pulse oximeters. And there'll also be some funding to support home visits. And that's in addition to current funding for GPs, practice nurses, or medical deputising services. This will be, uh, we think this will be organised through the PHN. Again, we're just um, waiting for the details. Um, as of yesterday, we've, um, all the GPRCs have received some information from the Commonwealth around a proposal to the extension of their role, which will be around um, not only providing vaccination and testing services, but also um, assessment and management for people who, who have tested positive and perhaps don't have a usual GP or where there's limited access to GPs. So again, this is a proposed extension of the role. Um, so we'll be waiting for more information about that as that, as that comes in. Also, um, uh, the role of Health Direct in supporting um, the initial patient contact and triaging for people who test positive as well to COVID. So again, and being triaged into COVID, local COVID care pathways. So there's lots of activity happening. We're just waiting for some more, some more details about that. Um, you may have seen on Monday, we sent out a Moderna um, EOI to all general practices. This is for practices already involved in the, in the vaccination program. If you, we've had, a, we've had about 10 responses so far. Um, if you're interested in it, just um, you can send us a, an email to our COVID inquiry um, PHN email address if you haven't seen the EOI to date. If you are, well, if you are get into the program, you'll be given 200 doses per fortnight. You can also receive the stock frozen. Um, it's more likely if you're further away from, from a hub that you would receive the stock frozen. But if you'd like to put that in your EOI as well, you can, um, as, as just noted there on the slide. Um, the frozen shelf life is up to seven months um, at normal freezer temperatures, minus 15 to minus 25 or 30 days between two and eight. Um, and just for noting at the moment, um, Moderna can't be used as a booster. They haven't applied for authorization of that as yet, but I'm sure that will come. Uh, next slide. So just some slight changes to how to manage any extra AstraZeneca doses that you may have. Again, information from the Commonwealth guidelines just changing slightly. So if you've got vaccines that AstraZeneca that's going to expire at least within, um, well, at a minimum, eight weeks from expiration, if you've got cold chain records available, if you've got more than 20 vials and they're in the original packaging, then if you can contact us, our, our COVID response team, and we will provide that information back to the Commonwealth to organise collection of that. And finally, the booster program for residential aged care is kicking off officially next Monday. Aspen will be the provider in Victoria. They will do a one-off visit to each of the private RACFs in our region, unless that, that RAC has already got some private um, other arrangements. Um, a couple of the larger organisations already have started their, their vaccinations. 
And again, it's a one-off visit by Aspen. So if there are uh, residents who are ineligible at that time to receive a vaccination, you will probably find that you'll be um, approached by RACFs if you're visiting visiting their facilities to provide vaccinations as well. Um, RACFs can also contact um, their local GP or other primary in primary care enrich for boosters if they prefer rather than have Aspen. And there's some updated consent information on the um, Commonwealth um, site as well with a link in that. And that's probably, they're the key things for now. Thanks, Bianca. Great, thanks, Linda. And we'll pop the uh, email in the chat. So if you want to get in touch with the COVID response team at PHN, um, we'll make sure that email's in the chat. Thank you very much. Over to you, Kat Graham. Morning, everyone. I'll just get the slides up again, just to start our day. There haven't been too many um, updates this week, probably because um, of the long weekend, um, not much happens in terms of guidance changing. We did have a pre-submitted question, and this was around COVID testing and COVID positive tests remaining positive, um, particularly after people have been released from isolation. And this is really important um, with some workplaces and childcare centres and things requesting um, that people have clearance tests, which we definitely do not recommend. It's not part of guidance. And one of the reasons is because they keep testing positive and it gives everyone a headache when they then have to manage the positive test. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide, just in terms of answering these questions. So looking at the main shedding duration is around about 17 days. So if you're testing at the end of an isolation period, you can still well, are likely to get a positive in a lot of cases. The maximum detected has been 126 days in stool shedding, which is why you sort of tend to see the wastewater detections a lot longer than um, positive cases in some points in time. So the earliest time now, and this is one of the changes um, that we're seeing in public health guidance, um, it doesn't appear anywhere uh, yet online, uh, but this is now public health guidance, is 12 weeks um, that we would retest patients if they're asymptomatic or symptomatic. Uh, there's no requirement to isolate as a case or quarantine as a primary close contact during that first 12 weeks after having COVID. Um, and this is a really important change. It was formerly eight weeks, um, but it has now increased to 12. Um, and so managing a reinfection in regards to testing is quite complex. Um, at the Department of Health and through LPHUs, there's a guidance document with flowcharts and things that we manage people through if they're a historic case, if we don't have documented COVID, um, or if we've just had sort of somebody with low CT values. Um, so CT is your cycle threshold. And basically that's how many cycles uh, the test has to go through until it gains enough fluorescence to be able to pick up. So high values, it's a really low sort of viral load detected. Low values, there's lots of virus around and you can pick it up really easy. So if it's really high CT values and you see that on a result, that's sort of likely to be really low um, levels. So that's either really, really early in a case or really, really late or a historical case. So if you suspect it's historical, asymptomatic, retest. Um, obviously, you're doing all of this under the guidance, usually even LPHU. Um, retest 24 to 96 hours. If your CT values are lower, that means you're getting a higher viral load and it's an active case. If they're the same or higher and there's evidence of past infection, you might be doing serology at this point. It's not a new infection. And then we pro uh, progress with the historical thing. If your serology is negative, 
you're obviously discussing more with the LPHU at this point. So hopefully that's answered the pre-submitted question. So we'll just go on to the next slides. So there's not much different in this point. Um, I did want to answer sort of some other questions that have been popping up around our role in schools. Really schools and workplaces now, there's a lot more self-management happening um, in collaboration with the LPHUs. So as GPs, we don't have a lot to do with schools, um, particularly because what will happen is there's a case that's reported into a school. Our role may be that we pick up a positive case and the case sort of says, oh, yes, I was at school during this time. We may advise the case to say, or to tell the school, or we may call the school and say, hey, they were at the school during this invective period. Schools have a good um, sort of process through the Department of Education or the Catholic schools or independent schools, and they have a back and forth um, with clear documentation um, where they submit all the contacts um, and they've got their own matrix that they work through in terms of time spent in classrooms. There's different ones for primary schools, different ones for VCE students, and now for early learning centres as well and kindergartens, because we recognise that kids sort of interact really differently. So all of that happens separately. Um, the schools will often give that contact management advice directly to the students at that point. For anyone who is not a designated close contact, obviously designated close contacts will be then provided that information directly from public health. So we don't need to do anything at that point. But if you do have any questions, you can still call that priority support line for GPs and you'll be put through to um, either whoever's managing the school directly. If it's a VCE student, it'll be done um, centrally or an LPHU. So I'll just go on to the next slide. Um, just the COVID care resources to remind you about them. Next slide. Um, health pathways, just to um, heads up, the COVID positive care in the community is there if you want to get a bit of a forward look before you get any COVID positive cases to manage yourself. Um, there have been some updates. I was just having a look there. The COVID-19 um, MBS items doesn't have the new item on yet, um, but it's just been updated um, with a link just about the MBS billings for um, that third vaccination dose um, or booster doses, but that actually um, is still going live at the moment. Um, so next slide as well. We'll move on to my favourite thing for the week, which is rapid antigen testing, which is the revision course for epidemiology and biostats in one over-the-counter testing device. And it was everyone's favourite subject in med school because it was just so, so removed from everything else, which seemed clinically linked at least. And epidemiology and biostats just seemed like it was back to uh, maths. So I'll try and make this not so much maths linked, uh, but it does tend to sort of dip into that a little bit um, out of necessity. Um, so with the over-the-counter testing devices, there are now 12 approved brands and there's a link in the slides which will go through to the TGA um, approval, which there are nasal swabs or saliva options. Um, the reason that I'm flagging this is because with 12 approved brands, there are 12 approved different methods for testing. So depending on which one your patient picks up, there are different testing options. There's a user-dependent component to results. And um, this is going to be really similar to pregnancy tests. It's going to be really 
similar to the reason you end up with pregnancy tests, which is contraception. And contraception, as we know, you have your perfect sort of stats for contraception effectiveness, and you have your in-practice usage stats. So we have our perfect stats, which they put on their um, sort of device usage, and then you have your user-related stats, which is much different because people, uh, they say that the instructions are really simple. I'm reading through them. They're not. They're um, quite complex. You need a reasonable degree of health literacy to sort of read through them. Um, you need to be able to read English to read through them. You have to do everything at set times. You have to have no contaminants. You have to have not drunk um, or eaten within a time period beforehand. You have to not use nasal spray. There's a whole lot of things that could make this not go right. Um, positive results must isolate and follow up with a PCR. Symptomatic patients must also have a PCR. Um, and many instructions that are included in the pack also say contact your healthcare professional for advice, which is where we're going to end up being contacted for advice. Um, so I would, um, sorry, can we just go back to that last slide? Um, the Victorian patient information is really important and I'd probably put that on any sort of patient information or give it out to staff um, working in reception, those kind of things, because you really want people to know that this is where they need to get the best information about how to manage their test results, when to take tests, those kind of things. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So the sensitivity varies. It really differs between brands. Um, there are higher levels given in the product information than the Cochrane review, and the sensitivity really differs depending on a number of other different values. So what your viral load is, so it's really good if you're symptomatic, if you're in the first week of symptoms. It's not so good if you're asymptomatic or if you're later in your time frame of symptoms. So, and we'll go on to the next slide. So the specificity is high. So when you actually have a positive, it's quite a good chance that it is a positive, sort of. What's going to change is the, sorry, I've got yelling in the background, um, is the community prevalence and the false positives, um, which is really, really important to consider, particularly when we actually have quite a low community prevalence at the moment. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So when you've got, you know, a 5% prevalence and symptomatic um, cases, just based on sort of some of those rates um, from the Cochrane Review, your positive predictive value works out to be about 84 to 90%. So you're only getting one in 10 to one in six positives being a false positive. And you're not missing a heap of cases. But when you're going down to 0.5% prevalence, we're really at 0.2% prevalence at the moment in Victoria. Um, and if you're going to say asymptomatic, um, which a lot of people are doing the asymptomatic testing as part of workforce testing, your positive predictive value is a lot worse. So seven in 10 to nine in 10 positives are false positives and you're missing a whole lot of cases, which is fine if you're doing mass workforce screening. What it's not so useful for is if you actually want to rule in positive cases. So I think my sort of take home message is if you've got people where you really 
sort of think they're symptomatic, get your PCR. Um, if there's a chance that you want to sort of know something faster, you can try a rat. Um, but if it's negative, it's not going to give you a lot of reassurance. You're still going to want to do that PCR anyway. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. We're going to head over to Carolyn. Um, so do keep putting questions in the chat about rats. Let's keep the conversation going. I'm sure this is going to be a theme that we'll keep touching on. But for now, I want to bring you, we wanted to bring you some um, updates on therapeutics as part of our COVID care series. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks very much, Bianca. Can you see my screen? Yes. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. So I'm just going to go through uh, COVID-19 treatment. So pre-hospital, in-hospital, um, and hopefully it will be helpful for you, you know, in the community as well. So just to think about the spectrum of disease. So we, we know that most people will only experience mild symptoms. Um, some of them will go on to have uh, moderate symptoms like fever, persistent cough, quite significant weakness and clinical and radiological signs of lung involvement. Um, and then a small percentage will have uh, severe or even critical disease. And over the last couple of years, we've been able to figure out who of the population are more at risk of having a disease progression to severe of, or critical disease. And in fact, most of the, um, you know, the treatments are directed in fact towards this uh, uh, part of the population. So it's not that everyone with COVID necessarily needs treatment, but it's only those who are who are at risk or who have progressed to severe disease. And it may be good to think about it as uh, the initial rectificative phase. Um, and that's why initially we use things like antivirals. So remdesivir, for example, and uh, nef is an antiviral that's currently being used in trials. Um, and then we also have neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, such as sotrovimab and casirivimab and imdevimab, which again can help neutralize the virus at the start of the disease. And then later on, as we've discussed in the past, uh, you know, in the second week of illness, that's when you get that cytokine release syndrome. And that's when you're using, you know, your steroids, your um, IL-6 receptor antagonists like cerilimab, tocilizumab, and your JAK inhibitors like baricitinib. So we'll start with patients who are admitted to the hospital, but not requiring oxygen. Um, so maybe, you know, these would have been monitored by the remote patient monitoring team. There's a bit of concern uh, that's been escalated to the doctor and an ambulance has been called and they're being reviewed in ED. Um, so if they're not requiring oxygen at that stage, it's reasonable in, you know, in adults children, adolescents, pregnant and breastfeeding women to start budesonide, 800 micrograms BD for 14 days. Now, this is based on the principal trial, which at the time only included uh, sort of adults at higher risk. So age over 65 or 50 with, with one or more of those risk factors. Um, but in adults and children of all ages and pregnant women of all ages with risk factors, it would be reasonable to, um, to start this therapy. Uh, and for example, last week in the Grampians, there was a case of um, a woman who had asthma and, uh, you know, needed to be assessed in hospital, but didn't need, need admission. And Alison Miller is one of the GPs who was uh, working in the, uh, the healthcare, COVID positive healthcare pathway. 
um, and, uh, and we started this patient on bidesonide, for example, because she had asthma. Then once patients are admitted to hospital, but not requiring invasive or non-invasive ventilation, so still sort of relatively early in the disease, we start from Desivere and it's a five day course. There are some contraindications such as liver and renal dysfunction, and we don't use it in children or, um, or adolescents. Now there has been some evidence too that remdesivir is quite helpful even in patients who do not require um, hospitalization to actually prevent hospitalization. However, unfortunately, it is an intravenous course. So, and it's a five day course too. So um, as you can imagine, it's not very simple logistically. So similar to Sotrovimab, which I'll go into later. Um, then we've got patients who are admitted to hospital and requiring oxygen, including mechanically ventilated. So at this stage, you know, we're getting to the point where there is more of this um, cytokine release uh, issue. And so over here, the evidence is all for steroids. So mainly it's dexamethadone, six milligrams daily, intravenously or orally for up to 10 days. Alternatively, hydrocortisone, prednisolone, and in some severe cases, uh, certainly some patients who are ventilated in intensive care unit, we've, we've used methylprednisolone as well because of, you know, this really severe um, inflammatory uh, response. Now, it's not recommended routinely for those not requiring, not requiring oxygen, but if you have a patient who, you know, has asthma or COPD and would normally get a course of steroids for an exacerbation, you know, a viral exacerbation, um, then it's still uh, fine to use it in that situation even if they're not requiring oxygen. Then we move to the immunomodulatory drugs. So uh, baricitinib, tocilizumab, and cerilumab. Um, as I mentioned, so this is when, you know, you're treating that cytokine release syndrome. Uh, but we need to remember that they are immunomodulatory drugs. So, I mean, they are going to affect then that individual's response to infection in general. So we do need to consider uh, opportunistic infection potentially. And in fact, we would generally you know, depending on the risk factors, we would be testing for latent TB infection and hepatitis B just to test for reactivation. So um, that's that's important to remember. But then again, you know, these patients are admitted to hospital and the COVID inpatient team is going to be doing this testing and follow up as well. So baricitinib is uh, a dynamic kinase inhibitor. And this is recommended for adults hospitalized who require oxygen, but not yet mechanically ventilated. Um, and it's the important thing here is that it's oral. So it's four milligrams daily for 14 days. So it does reduce the need for mechanical ventilation and death. It does have a short half-life, which is in a way good for, for that risk of opportunistic infections. Um, the only downside is the fact that it is oral, which means that if someone is, um, you know, then going to be ventilated and perhaps has either a bowel obstruction or reduced, reduced bowel uh, motility, then it might not be as effective. And for those with really severe cytokine release, we have Cerilima, which I have to admit I have never used, so I'm not sure what the access is like for that, but it is a recommendation. Um, and that's for adults requiring high flow, non-invasive or invasive invasive mechanical ventilation, uh, but not in pregnant women, breastfeeding women, children or adolescents. And entosolizumab is for adults requiring oxygen and the criteria for use, um, you know, you, you do have to have quite 
with evidence of inflammation, so a raised CRP, D-dimer, LDH, that sort of thing. Uh, and it is important to remember that there is a shortage of this drug. So um, in most cases, we would try and use baricitinib unless there were contraindications. Um, but if someone you know, did meet criteria for tocilizumab, we, we could use that. It is a single dose and it does depend on weight and it's intravenous in this case. So for those who are mechanically ventilated, um, it would be reasonable. Um, and then just a note about pregnant and breastfeeding women. So you can use it in pregnant women, but uh, we do have to avoid live vaccines in the babies of women if they're more than 20 weeks for the first six months. Um, and uh, it does include children and adolescents who can receive it. Next, we'll move on to monoclonal antibody therapy. So over here, um, we're sort of moving back to kind of the pre-hospital stage. So Kazarivimab in, in Devimab, which is called Regenkov, uh, well, sorry, so actually that's in the US. It's actually called Ronapreve in, um, in Australia. And you might have heard about it because just two weeks ago, the TGA approved it. However, I did check in with um, the pharmacy at the Alfred, which is usually who we contact for sort of the national stockpile. And at this stage, we don't actually know when it's going to be available, how it's going to be administered, et cetera. So watch this space. But at the moment, you know, we can't actually use it yet, um, but it has been approved by the TGA. So that's the first step. And it is intravenous once again, uh, and it is a one-off dose. But, uh, so, but it can also be given subcutaneously. So certainly it can be given subcutaneously for post-exposure prophylaxis. So it could actually be quite useful in, uh, in this case, if it could be given you know, with a hospital in the home setting. And um, it, it has shown to be of benefit mostly in seronegative patients. Um, and it's usually similar to sotrovimab for patients with mild disease, given within seven days of symptoms. So sotrovimab can only be given within five, but this has a bit of an extended um, eligibility. And there are certain criteria as well. Uh, of note, not for pregnant women. So moving on to sotrovimab. So in this case, patients need to be within five days of symptoms. And so when, you, when you're calculating the days though, so the day that they develop symptoms is actually day zero. So then you have five days after that for them to be eligible. So, so keep that in mind. So you might still have you know, an extra day when you thought you didn't. Um, it is a requirement that they shouldn't be requiring oxygen because presumably by that time, that sort of missed the boat for, for this monoclonal antibody to be effective. And just remember the monoclonal antibody is really just trying to neutralize the virus early on in the disease. And uh, it's indicated for those who are unvaccinated. And the, the definition is of unvaccinated is no doses, one dose, or a second dose, which has been administered less than 14 days um, at that stage. Or if you're fully vaccinated and immunocompromised, you meet criteria two, plus one or more of the, these risk factors. So age greater than 55, BMI, sorry, equal or greater than 30, diabetes, uh, type 1 or type 2, as long as you're on medication, chronic kidney disease, COPD, uh, moderate to severe asthma, requiring inhaled steroid or all the steroids in the last 12 months, and uh, congestive cardiac failure with NYHA of 2 or greater. And it is actually recommended in the second and third trimester of pregnancy. So if, if you have a woman in the second or third trimester of pregnancy with a risk factor, then it is recommended. 
So I thought I'd speak briefly about the BAO experience. So currently we can administer it in a clinic that's been set up in building B, which is um, the old Geelong private hospital across the road from the public hospital. Um, we, we are using it sort of Monday to Friday on an ad hoc basis, really. So if we have a patient who's been flagged by the public health unit, we organize uh, a time for them to come in for the infusion. And if we do have a patient who's gonna run out of their five days over the weekend, then we can organize for them to have the infusion on the ward, on one of the COVID wards. You know, we do have lots of single rooms there and we have a very good um, process by which we can, you know, escort a patient safely, uh, you know, through the hospital and onto the COVID ward and back out again. Now with logistics, obviously it's not ideal to have in hospital because we are consciously bringing in a COVID positive patient into the hospital who would otherwise have not required to come into the hospital. Um, but unfortunately we've, uh, you know, explored hospital in the home op options and uh, it just wasn't going to work out. And in fact, even speaking to colleagues, you know, at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, uh, it, it just wasn't going to work out logistically, unfortunately. So it has to be on site somewhere. Uh, the other difficulty is the unpredictable numbers. So we actually have a casual workforce with regards to nurses and uh, a poor ID fellow has been quite overworked uh, and the inpatient COVID team too have been, have been helping out with that. Um, but we have had many doses having been given on the ward. And the patient, as I mentioned last week, does have to drive themselves in or we can organize community transport for them. Um, and just looking at the first 20 patients that we had, so the majority were, you know, met that unvaccinated criteria. So um, they'd, they'd had zero or one dose. One patient had had two doses, but she was severely immunocompromised. Um, and then, as you can see, the commonest indication was a BMI greater than 30, and then next was age, and then diabetes, and about five patients had more than one risk factor. We didn't have any uh, patients with infusion reactions, and in fact, even in the trials, essentially looking at all the monoclonal antibody trials, um, a lot of the patients in the placebo group, in fact, had more, had more reactions, which is actually thought to be more likely related to their COVID um, infection. And, uh, you know, there's only been one case of uh, anaphylaxis, which was treated with adrenaline. So it's not like it's a really high risk, but the thing is the trials didn't include, you know, uh, an extremely large number of patients. So certainly with the Sotrovimab trial, it only included about um, 500 patients. And they were concerned that they might have missed a potential serious adverse reaction in that case, which is why the advice is to, you know, be cautious for um, anaphylaxis. Uh, we've, we've had one patient who required readmission for some oxygen therapy. He was an elderly man, I think he was 81, who'd had one dose of a vaccine. And um, so far, none of those patients have died. So, you know, looking into the future of this infusion service, just over half had received at least one dose. So as more time passes, uh, a smaller proportion of the population are going to be eligible based on their vaccination status. We have encountered patients who continue to um, refuse vaccines or they're vaccine hesitant, and they're obviously less likely then to accept this therapy, which is experimental. So when we're going to the, to the you know, consent process and they're hearing that it's you know, a, really a trial drug, um, then they're less likely to accept that. But there is still a role for immunosuppressed patients. Now, there are certain therapies moving on uh, for COVID that are not recommended. So you know, trials have been performed. There isn't uh, enough evidence for benefit. So aspirin, azithromycin, colchicine, hydroxychloroquine, I'm sure you would have heard of the majority of these. So there is no 
um, recommendation to use these. And I'm sure you've had requests from patients about these medications, but at this stage, these are not recommended. And then um, perhaps more relevant for yourselves, you know, again, patients might ask, should I stop or continue these medications? So initially we know that the ACE2 receptor is used by the virus to get into human cells, um, but there is no evidence that use of ACE inhibitors or ARBs uh, changes the um, the course of the disease, so you should continue those unless there's a contraindication, say the patient comes into hospital in renal failure, in which case we would be withholding it anyway. Um, as I mentioned, so if the patient requires steroids for another reason, such as asthma or COPD, then these should continue. HRT um, should be stopped if a patient has severe or critical infection. We do see, uh, you know, a lot of um, thrombosis and, and clots and they do say to consider transdermal HRT after someone has recovered. The oral contraceptive pill can continue, but again, if someone is severely unwell, it's very unlikely that they would still be administered that. Um, and then another issue that might come up is timing of surgery. So uh, again, the, the advice is to ideally wait eight weeks post the diagnosis. And again, it's, it's allowing that post-inflammatory phase to settle down. But of course, it does depend on um, you know, the patient and, and how urgent the surgery is. So of course it can still go ahead just with precautions and assessing the VT risk. Just a short note about long COVID. Um, it can still occur and vaccinated individuals with breakthrough infections. Um, I'm mentioning it here because patients are most likely to come to their GP with symptoms initially. Um, we don't have a clinic specifically for it. I'm not sure if there is one in Melbourne currently. But again, the management is going to depend on symptoms. So I suppose similar to the way you would manage your um, patients with chronic fatigue, et cetera. So they may need a chronic disease plan, mental health plan, and that sort of thing. Um, but again, whether this you know, does develop in the future is, is yet to be seen. Um, and I'll just finish off with a recommendation for this book, Vaxes, by Professor Sarah Gilbert and Dr. Catherine Green. Um, really fascinating read about the development of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. So I really recommend it to everyone to understand how much work has gone into it and you know the, how much they knew already before um, starting the, the COVID vaccines because again you know all of this treatment is no substitute for for vaccines which should be our um, our main aim. Great thanks Caroline. Thank I'm glad to have a, um, a book recommendation um, because you know, I start the day with coronavirus and now I'm going to stop it with vaxes so that's great. Um, all right we've got five minutes for questions um, so please pop your questions in the chat. I know I'm curious about the use of judesonide maybe in the primary care setting. I'm also really curious about our potential role alongside those moderate pathways because from what you described around eligibility for um, citrovimab uh, all those patients all those criteria really would put someone on a moderate pathway which you'll probably remain with health services so under your view so what role might GPs play but I'm not going to put words into your mouth let's see what we've got also thank you for putting questions in the chat for us just continuing HRT when symptomatic increased clot risk or are there other risks look I believe it's about the clot risk essentially is my understanding uh, yeah look that's that's a recommendation in the COVID task force so again I think it's more of a it's a consideration it's, it's not a you know it's not a strong recommendation so it's only if people have uh, critical to severe disease you know they're in hospital essentially in the intensive care unit um, but if they have mild disease it's only a consideration and it, you it's not necessarily 
Uh, and Jared, yeah, stop yeah. HRT, but continue OCP. Well, I suppose people on HRT are more likely to be, you know, older and therefore fit into that high risk category is the way I would um, I would view that. And I guess no risk of pregnancy, but I mean, you can manage that. Yeah, so continuing contraception, yeah, same thought, because it's 10 times the strength of um, COP yeah. compared and to HRT, yeah. Karen, did yeah, you want to mention? Saying- no, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Caroline, did you want to take that? Oh, no, I mean, Karen can uh, yeah speak for the back of smash patients if you want, Karen. Sure. Um, oh, it was really just to say there's there's a list of criteria. Um, we can post them easily or send them around, and it's basically who's eligible for the, or who's indicated for um, use of bidesonide. And for us, for the medium risk, um, and that'll be a proportion of the GP patients as well, um, they're, they're, they're eligible and the studies are pretty clear that it reduces deterioration. So... Um, there's certainly a role for using budesonide, but you just need to look at the criteria to see if your patients are, are eligible. And one of the advantages over citrovimab, I mean, citrovimab is fantastic, a different criteria, but is that you can do it within onset within the first 14 days, whereas often we're missing those um, citrovimab um, patients because we're catching them a little bit late, whereas that doesn't isn't the case with, this, with budesonide inhaled. Thank you. And so you'll pop the link for the criteria in there. We'll make sure we send that afterwards. How strong was the budesonide evidence? So with bidesonide, so it did reduce the um, sort of the symptom duration, how the patients felt. So the symptom duration was reduced by a couple of days. Um, and I believe the, the risk of hospitalization as well. So, I mean, it's it's a little benefit for, you know, uh, in, in a drug that is very safe to use in most patients, essentially. So that's why it is recommended. Thank you. Um, there was a yeah. question. Sorry, we're just pressing for time. So there was a question about uh, fluvoxamine. Um, oh, yeah. What do we know about mm. flu- yeah, <laughs> fluvoxamine? Look, I, look, I'll be honest with you. I, I probably don't know more than you about that. I haven't really looked, looked into that. Sorry. And Zoom user, I'm not sure of your identity, masked Zoom user. Um, I'd heard about it for use in the long COVID chronic fatigue slash depression symptoms, but I don't know where else it was appearing. But if you want to give us some more information and unmask yourself, Zoom user, that would be great. Cheers. <laughs> Any other questions about... Um, um, thanks. And Kate, Graham, if you've got the link handy, but we'll send it out afterwards. Um, I'm just thinking, Karen, where do you go for all these, all this good information? Would be that that be the National Clinical Task Force? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, Jared and Co., um, National Clinical Task Force, I don't know if I've quite got the name right, COVID-19, Living Evidence, National Clinical Task Force. If you Google it, it'll come up as one of the high ones. Um, okay, well, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, um, Caroline. And I did notice you did have a co-host there. So thanks to your co-host as well. Yeah, hope, she's been uh, taken away. Yeah. It was useful to you. <laughs> well done. Because I think you've got to get in the car now and get to clinic. So you're incredible That's for right. multitasking. We really appreciate um, your time this morning and your ongoing support of our GP cohort in building confidence around what will become endemic and probably mm. GP care going forward. Really reassuring to hear that as vaccination rates go up, those risk of um, those deteriorating patients go down. So I'm just thinking it's going to be those immunosuppressed that we'll maintain in view and our potential role alongside your teams around providing that information around comorbidities where, where, where it might be helpful to do so. 
So, um, yes, yeah. thanks for your time this morning. And again, thanks, Karen Ahrens and um, Kate Graham, also for presentations and Linda Govan. Please evaluate the series. Grab the um, the QR code if um, if you haven't already. I'll give you a quick snapshot. Pre-submit questions. So I think that's a nice feature of um, Kate Graham's session. If you submit a tricky question for Kate, it'll kick off discussion. And, um, and thanks to everyone for the conversations in the chat around rapid antigen testing in primary care. That might be the topic of a future session. Do let us know if you want a bit more time to nut out together how you're triaging patients. Here's the numbers for the Grampians Public Health Unit and the Bowen Public Health Unit. Um, and I think also, Kate, if you've got the number handy, there is also the clinical COVID hotline. We'll also send that out as well. So, uh, yes, there, no, there it is at 1300 651 So if you can't remember your... Um, you know, your, uh, your, who your LPHU is, you can always call that central line and they'll divert you. Um, so thanks everyone for this morning. Um, we'll be back next week with um, patient self-monitoring. So for those low, low risk patients who might need to do quite a bit of self-monitoring, those ones that might end up being in the primary care pathways, um, how are they self-monitoring? That's what we'll be talking about next week. Um, we'd love a case. Uh, if you've got one and I'm looking at you guys, GPs in public health units, if you've got a nice low risk case for me, that we might need to really equip the patient for self-care. Um, that would be awesome. Brings the conversations to life. Thanks, everyone, for this morning. Um, take care and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks, Rinka. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack. That includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.